anxiety, fear, Jill Sandwich. These are a few terms that I tend to associate with Resident Evil. Anxiety over resource management throughout your campaign, which extends to the meticulous planning for any potential scenario. Spending your ammo wisely, carrying only what might be necessary, and making room for the stuff that matters most in an unpredictable horror setting. Anxiety and fear are not one and the same, though. Anxiety is an internal response to an unknown or hypothetical threat, whereas fear is elicited via present, very real danger. In Resident Evil, there are many situations in which fear can overwhelm you and drive you to make stupid decisions in an effort to survive. Whether it's an ambush, a suffocating battlefield, or a series of unpleasant footsteps following your every move, you need to face your fears and manage everything in spite of how naked you might feel in the moment. These two core elements were at play in a Metroid-esque puzzle box that had you solving puzzles and memorizing layouts across vivid and spooky locations, accompanied by intentionally clunky combat and a strict inventory system to make you feel the weight of every shot you fire and every item you choose to hold onto. Then there's the other element that makes Resident Evil the franchise that it is. <clears throat> okay, I have only one very important question. Do you got a smoke? Got gum. If Resident Evil didn't have that exceptional B-movie cheese in its dialogue and plot, if Jill wasn't almost a Jill sandwich, Resident Evil would not be the memorable series that it is. The balance of these three core elements wasn't always struck. Resident Evil 4 is one of my favorite games of all time, but its framework would be used to build games that weren't true to what Resident Evil was once about, Resident Evil 6 being the unfortunate culmination. But, as time eventually told us, not all was lost. Separate teams within Capcom were experimenting with the series in an effort to rediscover what made Resident Evil the hallmark franchise that it is. Eventually, we received Resident Evil 7. The game understood exactly what it was that made Resident Evil fun in the first place, and it accomplished things that evolved the series in an exciting direction. And today, we have Resident Evil Village, which I also greatly enjoyed. The series seems to be in a good place, but getting to that place proved to be tumultuous, and in the end, there is still reason to be concerned for this new era of Resident Evil. It is frightening in more ways than one. To tell you the full story, we must first answer a few questions. What makes a Resident Evil game fun? How did the series wander away from its focus, and what lessons needed to be learned? How did they recapture that focus? And in the end, what is still left to be done? All of this and more shall be answered in today's video. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is my analysis of the new era of Resident Evil. When I think of Resident Evil, I think of many different design elements coming together. The clumsy, tank-like control scheme becomes a catalyst for tension in combat. You can't move and shoot at the same time, so the simple act of killing a zombie as it limps toward you is nerve-wracking. On top of this, you're asking a million and one questions as you spend your ammo. Do I have enough ammo to kill this zombie? Should I even kill it? Or is it not as intrusive as other zombies, and can I afford to knock it down and leave it be? If I choose to spend more ammo, will I have enough for unexpected ambushes or boss fights? There's no telling how much ammo you'll be able to find in the future, so you gotta be careful. Yeah, when I said that Resident Evil created anxiety, I wasn't kidding. This is how the moniker of survival horror was born. It was how you reacted that drove the horror. Here's one of my favorite examples. At one point, you'll follow a winding series of halls to a dead end with a key item. It's a bit suffocating back here, isn't it? Once you attempt to leave and just as Jill walks around the corner, she backs into view once more and a zombie emerges. It's such a subtle moment, but a lot can be extrapolated from it. 
For one, it reinforces any anxieties you might have had over those hypothetical scenarios. You can't even round a corner without knowing if a zombie might attack you. On top of that, you now have to deal with this unanticipated threat in a boxed-in corridor. If there's one thing this encounter teaches you, it's that you can't just freak out and unload every shot into a zombie that startles you. You need to remain calm and collected, otherwise there won't be enough ammo to go around by the end of the game. Although the game certainly doesn't make it easy for you to do this, and that's why it's so scary. You have perfectly tangible fears that feed off of your hypothetical dread. In addition, you'll need to be able to keep track of the halls of the mansion, as Resident Evil employs a Metroid-esque map that unravels gradually. To solve it, you'll need to pick up clues and key items across the map and piece them together to finally end the nightmare. Although it might not seem wholly unique at first glance to place a horror game in a labyrinthine setting, Metroidvanias as a subgenre hadn't been defined at this point in video game history. Castlevania Symphony of the Night was still a year away at the time of Resident Evil's release, which made the game's structure compelling in its own right. However, it has stood the test of time due to how it played into the game's horror and expanded its replay value. Every trip down the halls of the mansion or the Raccoon City Police Department has the potential to be your last, depending on how you plan on dealing with zombies or how prepared you might be for a sudden attack. Therefore, the structure organically invites different methods of approaching danger. You could take your time as Jill Valentine and pick locks to stock up on ammunition, so that any zombie that stands in your way will be met with an appropriate amount of gunfire. This exploration for extra ammo ends up being a failsafe. You no longer need to simply knock enemies down as a precautionary measure or dodge them entirely. You can guarantee their demise and clear the way if you ever need to backtrack. This is where the replay value stems from. Knowing routes around the mansion can shave off time and save yourself the unnecessary trips and spending of ammunition. Resident Evil 2 fully embraced this, with both Claire and Leon having diverging campaigns with gameplay differences when played sequentially. Replaying a horror game can usually detract from fear of the unknown, as you know what to expect, but Resident Evil 2 takes the satisfying item management and combat mastery at play in the original game and makes them the focus, innately driving horror and tension as a result. These elements were what drove the original three games in spirit, and that's not to mention the locations and atmosphere. The entirety of the mansion, the sewers, the clock tower, and the music was chilling. There was a lot to like in the first three main entries in the Resident Evil series. And as the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Which is why the decision to reinvent the series seems a bit puzzling in hindsight. I mean, we all know what happened in the end. I love Resident Evil 4. You most likely love it too, and Lord knows the rest of YouTube loves it. So then, why is it also regarded as the beginning of the end for Resident Evil? Director Shinji Mikami felt that Rezi's old format was holding his team down, according to a 2004 interview. He felt that it was time to come up with something new, and the end result was a solid horror game. With the new over-the-shoulder perspective, accuracy was now the most important factor in staying alive. You could shoot the Ganados in the leg to stumble them, in the hand to disarm them, or you could go for the head if you had enough firepower. And because they've done away with the fixed camera angles, you need to constantly be aware of your surroundings, making that first encounter with the Ganados in the village one of the most intense and utterly terrifying introductions I've experienced in a game, even 16 years on. It continues to live up to the standards set by that intro, keeping you on edge and perfecting that gameplay loop from the previous games. I believe it to be a masterpiece. But this was undeniably where the screws came loose, foreshadowing the fall of Resident Evil. The game's world design was slightly reminiscent of its predecessors, with some overlapping paths and secrets that could be used for upgrading your arsenal, 
but chapters were mostly segmented, focusing on isolated horror set pieces. Some staff members working on the game felt saddened over the game's shift from survival horror to action horror, but more than anything, this shift in focus and tone would be completely misconstrued by Capcom themselves. While it is true that Resi 4's third-person innovations had a profound effect on shooters and action-adventure games, it also had a negative impact on Resident Evil and the horror genre. Resi 4's combat interface essentially made action the linchpin of AAA horror games overnight, sidelining horror in favor of the tension that combat can create. So what did this mean for Resident Evil? Well, in 2009, we got Resi 5, which went on to become the best-selling game in the franchise. Although it has its moments of pure terror, it is primarily a cooperative third-person shooter. If you play it on your own, don't expect your partner to be very competent. The tension in Resi 5 came from sharing items with your buddy, and watching each other's backs. There's no sense of vulnerability like in the previous games, it's just a really well-made co-op shooter. But that doesn't make it a good Resident Evil game. While Resi 4's ridiculous moments, excluding Salazar, breathed life and joy into a suffocating and mysterious game, Resi 5 is like Resi 4 on steroids. The absolutely nonsensical and over-the-top action of Resi 5, paired with Albert Wesker stepping out of the Matrix to spearhead an utterly stupid family reunion tale, it just never sat right with me, even acknowledging the series' campy moments from before. Still, Resi 5 is a blast if you have a friend to play it with. It isn't nearly as egregious as what came after. Resident Evil 6 is an anomaly. Like Resi 5, it is especially enjoyable with a friend, but that's where my praise for the game ends. Resi 6 is enjoyable for all of the wrong reasons, and it's an absolute mess otherwise. It is an utterly ridiculous, painfully linear, unbearably scripted action game that can't even stand on its own two legs. It is plagued by design trappings of blockbusters from the late 2000s and early 2010s, and it is unrelenting with its abundance of quick-time events, corridor-esque level design, and repetitious scripted sequences. The seeds were sown for these problems in Resi 4, but that game actually had purpose for these elements, and they were handled pretty well too, catching the player off guard or otherwise maintaining the feeling of dread. But they were exacerbated in Resi 5, and finally boiled over in Resi 6. Whatever you want to call this game, it certainly isn't Resident Evil. In light of the lukewarm response, Capcom did everything in its power to turn things around. They conceded that horror games would never be on the same level as action games financially, but said that the series would return to its roots regardless. Resident Evil Revelations seemed to foreshadow this return. It felt like more of a successor than Resi 6 ever did. It wasn't perfect, but it represented the beginning of the franchise's healing process. Things were getting better, and the turnaround seemed almost instant from here. After a mixed response from its E3 showings, Resident Evil 7 eventually released in 2017 to acclaim from most. Here's how Resi 7 gave people hope. After being scorned by previous entries, it was nice to have the title screen of Resi 7 feel so elegantly ominous. The music is composed of reversed notes and tangled melodies, foreshadowing the haunting mystery that slowly unravels over the course of the game. As newcomer Ethan Winters pulls up to the Baker residence, there is absolutely no telling where this game will take you, or why Mia was in the state she was in before. We are given just enough context for his arrival, and that's it. Controlling Ethan, you hack away at your possessed wife in a fight-or-flight scenario, and end up getting sucker-punched for it. Traditional Resident Evil elements slowly fall into place as the suspense grows. Finding out what happened here 
is just as exciting as watching Resident Evil's forgotten design spring back to life. One of the first things I took notice of in Resi 7 was its full utilization of the first-person perspective. So many of its scariest moments came from the fact that you are playing it through the eyes of its protagonist. Even on higher FOV settings, the claustrophobic nature of a first-person camera makes walking down corridors, turning corners, and fighting enemies one hell of an intense experience. And it also gives the designers ample opportunity to just mess with the player. Just that first glance at Jack Baker appearing as if he was an illusion is enough to edge the player into the unpredictability of this game. But then you have Jack literally forcing your hand in instances where you think you're home free. Marguerite coming through the ceiling and erratically crawling around the greenhouse as you try to bring her down. It's all so great. The different camera angles across Resident Evil have always been an invitation to experiment with great scares. There's that moment in Resi 1 I mentioned earlier, but then there's also the organic moments that come about as a result of the fixed camera angles. When you have zombies outside of your current shot and you have to solve a problem, you'll have no choice but to listen for it and be aware of how much time you have to escape. Then you also have fantastic scripted scares like when a liquor crawls across the window in Resi 2. It instills such anxiety and uncertainty to see something so creepy just frantically scurry out of your vision. By the time Resi 4 rolled around, keeping track of enemies became the name of the game. As soon as you start hearing that music or the exclamations of the Ganados, you immediately have to start looking around and evaluating your circumstances. Accuracy was also a huge part of the game's horror, as we've discussed. Resi 7 carries most of this over, notably enemy tracking and accuracy, but the comparatively narrow field of vision and additional design choices make it the most immersive way to play Resident Evil and terrifying in its own right. The only HUD element the game will show you is your ammo counter. The rest of that essential info, health, items, your map, can only be managed and observed either by keeping track of it mentally, by observing visual cues, or by stopping dead in your tracks to do so. Unlike previous games, the map and inventory screens don't pause the game, meaning that especially tight and confusing areas like the cargo ship or the basement could become your worst nightmare. Just like the best Resident Evil games, it is paramount that you keep calm in scary situations, otherwise you could waste ammo, get lost, or lose precious resources trying to stay alive. The Baker Ranch, although relatively segmented, is interwoven with keys and items that intersect with its various moving parts, and thanks to the return of your classic inventory system, you'll need to pick and choose which items you can carry at any given time. Sometimes you'll even unearth shortcuts to other sections on the property that can be helpful in a pinch, and once you've exhausted the place's puzzles and made your escape, your next destination is the cruise ship. I know this is a contentious part of the game, but I genuinely loved solving it. It revolves around a broken elevator, which needs a fuse and a cable to operate again. What follows is a journey through its perilous floors as you desperately search for ways to defend yourself and you squeeze through gaps in the elevator doors to scour separate portions of the ship, eventually linking them together. Overall, it is such a tightly designed game. Progress is dependent on how well you know the halls and how smart you can be in the face of that anxiety. And let's just say the game doesn't do you any favors. Jack and Marguerite Baker stalk their respective portions of the ranch, beckoning to you in an eerily jovial tone. It's a perfect example of that balance between creepy and campy in Resident Evil. They aggressively pursue you if they spot you, but thankfully the game gives you enough time beforehand to observe your immediate surroundings for places to run and hide. Actually, on that note, as your perception of the ranch expands, the game gradually introduces new threats to keep you from ever feeling comfortable. The tapes that you can play through before entering a new area with Ethan give you ideas on what to interact with, and let you bypass certain tasks on occasion. 
And as you enter the living room and gain access to the second floor, you're given some time to be uncontested as you explore. Then, Jack makes a startling return and hunts you down as you solve the rest of the house. In the same stride, a strange black mold that feels alive begins to produce humanoid zombie-like creatures. The mold is volatile. Sometimes it'll give you enemies to deal with, other times it just sits there as if to taunt you. Maybe it'll give you something to fight, maybe it'll just wait. You don't know. And that is perhaps the scariest part. I've alluded to how boxed in most of this game can feel, and it isn't designed like this simply to make the game feel creepy. Any encounter with any enemy is immediately a life or death scenario when you have little room to breathe. And when you have Jack busting down walls or mold creatures filling tiny rooms, it can be very difficult to think straight. Not unlike the Resi games of old. And because the game sets you up to deal with these circumstances, the challenge is welcome and the fear induces adrenaline. Aside from the bugs, I, I hate dealing with the bugs. Speaking of adrenaline, I greatly appreciate the steady increase in power that you see over the course of the game. It's smart, and because you can't easily craft ammo for your more powerful weapons, you need to be constantly assessing what the best time to use them would be. By doing this, however, you also run the risk of conserving ammo for too long and putting yourself in danger. This phenomenal balance should sound familiar because it's a balance that was struck in the older Resident Evil games time and time again. It's good to be back. For most of the game, your pistol is your best friend. It might not deal a lot of damage, but sustained fire with it to an enemy's weak spot can be the difference between your survival and your demise. Multiple enemies ask for a more powerful response, and that's where your shotgun and grenade launcher can come into play. In this game, there is nothing more satisfying than killing a zombie that's pursuing you with a single shotgun blast to the head. It represents your ability to maintain your resources up to that point, where you can finally afford to spend them. With combat in this game, the weapons have utility, the payoff is immediate, and the dopamine is sublime. Weapons and upgrades can also be rewards for thoroughly exploring the house. Across the Baker residence, you can find antique coins that can be spent on health upgrades, stamina upgrades, and even more powerful handguns. The M1 is a straight upgrade from the stock pistol, and while magnum ammo is rare throughout the game, the damage you can deal makes it worth hunting for. The coins are also a fantastic example of how exploration feeds into combat and vice versa. You can use psychostimulants to highlight items around the house, and you can use gunpowder, chem fluid, and herbs to craft resources when you need them most, crafting them in accordance with the scenario. All in all, it's a well-made game. I'm sure I gave you that impression, and if you played it, hopefully you felt that way too. But we have yet to touch upon what I love most about it. Sure, it's a return to form for survival horror, but what makes it such a unique game in the face of other horror games are its characters. More specifically, the Baker family. As revealed toward the end of the game, Evelyn is influencing the family's violent actions. This is heartbreaking, as evidence collected throughout the game points to them being a normal family at one point. Jack was once a loving father and husband that loved football, while Marguerite was a caring mother that enjoyed tending to her plants. But all of that changed when they took Evelyn in. No humanity can be drawn from them by the time Ethan arrives, as they feast on human entrails at the dinner table like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Their most eccentric traits have been exaggerated to an almost comedic effect, making for performances by their respective actors Jack Brand and Sarah Coates both disturbing and unforgettable. Their daughter Zoe isolated herself in the family trailer when she realized they were beyond saving, and the Bakers continued to kidnap people in an effort to share Evelyn's gift with them. Without knowing this stuff, 
which is the case for a good portion of the game, the Bakers just seem like the family in Texas Chainsaw. It is a fucked up situation. Any hints toward who they once were gave me hope. But upon finally making it to the trailer and flipping that photo of the Bakers around, I realized how crushing the reality of the situation was. This is also where I was able to properly soak in the impact of this game's save room theme for the first time. A mangled acoustic guitar attempts to convey a sense of comfort through an atmosphere of mystery and anguish. The Baker Ranch is an absurd funhouse of death and despair, with few rooms being safe havens from its brutal nightmares. But underneath it all is a longing to see things go back to the way they were. While running from Jack and Marguerite, there are usually two thoughts that cross my mind. The first is, oh my god, 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 and the second is, I feel bad for these people. They have been turned into mere puppets by a force beyond their control, and any semblance of normality will never return for this family. The people they once were, are gone. And then there's Lucas. Before your first encounter with him, you'll most likely stumble into his old room. While in school, he won several awards for his projects. He was likely considered a genius as a child, but that only scratches the surface of who he was, and who he'd become. Even Andre of the Web Show crew at the beginning of the game alluded to this. When he was much younger, he locked a kid that was picking on him in the attic, where that kid presumably died. He eventually developed antisocial tendencies and had numerous fights with his family, until Evelyn came along and changed things. Lucas does not want things to go back to how they were, instead reveling in Evelyn's gift, torturing people with his inventions and affinity for games. His situation is unique in that his enjoyment of what's going on straddles the line between genuine and external influence. Was he gonna end up like this anyway? That much is left ambiguous. With all that said, his section of the game ended up being my absolute favorite. In order to get into his part of the ranch, you have to exhaust the rest of the ranch for the red and blue keycards. This observance is crucial, as Lucas has turned the barn into a makeshift death house straight out of Saw. Booby traps are everywhere, he pits you against a beefy molded zombie, and there's even an escape room that ensures certain death for Ethan, unless you learn from Clancy's mistakes in a previous tape. Using knowledge from that tape can allow you to bypass a lot of the puzzles, and most importantly, avoid spilling gasoline everywhere and dying a horrible fiery death. It acts as a culmination of your searching throughout the Baker household, and as a nice test of combat and rapid fire decision making, all the same. It's moments like these that make it difficult for me to forget Resident Evil 7. Its dark and overwhelming halls were compelling because of the gameplay that took place, and the tragedy looming over them. As far as I was concerned, Resident Evil had been unquestionably brought back to its roots. It is everything that made the original so great, and then some. It left me salivating for Resident Evil Village. This game's introduction expands on the mystery at play in Resi 7's first moments, and creates an atmosphere of uncertainty that has been kind to the series in the past. There's something so visceral about having to fend for yourself after watching your wife get shot down and your baby kidnapped by someone you thought you could call a friend. You're fighting through this frigid, cramped, hopeless town in the middle of nowhere, and it still manages to be anxiety-inducing. Taking yet another cue from Texas Chainsaw, most of the village's scariest moments happen in broad daylight, setting a precedent that nowhere is safe. In the beginning, this is far from an empty threat. Hiding, covering your tracks, and blocking off entrances will only get you so far, 
you have to scavenge for ammo, give yourself room to breathe, and land your shots, otherwise the lichens will end up surrounding you and overwhelming you. There's no telling when they may strike next, therefore making a calm, if desolate village seem sinister at all times. With all of this in mind, the intro teaches you a lot about the game itself. Navigation, combat, fear, resourcefulness, all while you try to get a lay of the land. You can observe different pieces to its many puzzles, and take note of certain areas that you can visit later. If I were to choose a broad aspect of Resi Village that I enjoyed most, it'd have to be the village itself. It is so detailed and rich, with so many secrets to find, so many ways to upgrade your loadout, shortcuts that connect to different areas. And its segmented areas are so well constructed and thematically sound, that their lack of connection to the village hub is negligible in the end. You could spend as much time as you like trying to piece together the village as you progress, and you'd still likely have a blast, much like the wealth of helpful items to uncover in a Metroid game. I have no qualms saying that the map of Resi Village is one of the series' finest. Hunting for ingredients, searching for treasure to buy new weapons, finding optional portions of the village to fight through and reap some awesome rewards, I just got lost in it all, and it certainly makes the most challenging aspects of this game more fun to go up against as you build an arsenal. Like for example, finding the revolver. After desperately fighting to survive against a mutated wolf, exhausting a good chunk of my resources in the process, Another one shows up just as I find this new weapon. The game is giving me an opportunity to witness a sampling of its power, and I'm not about to pass it up. Boom. It's dead. After such a grueling fight, this moment here allowed me to feel the accomplishment in finding this thing. And from then on, I was able to use it wisely and effectively. But let's talk about some of those segmented areas outside of the village, because they are where this game can shine brightest. Each area aims to teach you and test you on something different. The castle is structured much like a traditional Resident Evil house, with the small exception of the fact that you have to evade Lady D and her daughters while solving it. Then you have Heisenberg's factory, which is more linear than its contemporaries, but it is frightening in every sense of the word. Heisenberg himself may be my favorite character in the game. Sure, his actor is just doing an impression of Nick Cage, but the way he effortlessly bends scrap metal to his will and hams up all of his actions is so entertaining. He is a prime example of why Cheese belongs in Resident Evil. His experiments steal the show as you take a trip into his factory. You have to deal with this nightmarish compound of propellers and flamethrowers, and then narrowly evade these Half-Life 2 stalker-esque monstrosities with drills for hands. Evocative of Resi 7's scariest aspects, this factory requires lateral thinking, great aim, and a grasp on your resources to survive. The pinnacle of this new, claustrophobic take on Resident Evil in first person. So, without getting into the nitty gritty, you'd be right in assuming that I enjoyed my time with Resi Village. But something's nagging at me. I failed to mention this earlier, but Resi 7 was pretty flawed. It felt incomplete, or otherwise mediocre in certain areas. And here's the reason I'm bringing this up now. While Resident Evil Village fixed some of the problems plaguing Resi 7, it also introduced a slew of its own problems. Problems that are more than a little concerning for the series' future. First, let's take a look at if and how Resi Village fixed some of Resi 7's problems. Resi 7 had some work left to be done before it could stand tall alongside its predecessors. For starters, the boss fights were often either subpar or downright annoying. I thought the first fight with Jack would set the standard for boss fights to come, but that chainsaw brawl ended up being one of the most obnoxious, repetitive, and clunky boss fights I've ever had to sit through. Being hunted by Marguerite in the greenhouse is terrifying at first, but it begins to drag on as you drain all of your ammo and you fight to keep track of her. 
But perhaps the most egregious example is the game's climax. Fighting through hordes of molded in such an enclosed space is a climax in and of itself, it's thrilling. But once you've made it to Evelyn, the game is heavily scripted. There isn't much of a final boss to speak of. You just kinda have to shoot until the game is over. It isn't the final showdown that this game deserved. This problem was mostly addressed. Resi Village has plenty of great boss fights, especially the final bout with Miranda. They all have a strong focus on aiming and tracking from a first-person perspective, even if some are better than others. Resi 7 didn't have many different enemy types to deal with outside of the bakers and the molded zombies, which Resi Village made sure to fix up as well. Generally, the game addresses criticism of its predecessor, but there was one change to the design philosophy that bothered me. According to an interview with Resi Village producer Suyoshi Kanda, the game's scares were intentionally scaled back in an effort to make it more accessible for everyone. That isn't where the problem lies. There's nothing wrong with trying to make a game that everyone can play. The problems stem from how they handled this. Village took a few cues from the legendary Resi 4, lifting its inventory management system and designing the eponymous village out of inspiration for its setting. But then there's the focus on action that I take issue with. Don't get me wrong, shooting things in this game feels good for the same reasons as Resi 7. I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy fighting my way through hordes of lichens swarming me. It's why the intro was so good. Like Resi 4, this game has specific instances in which you have to take care of lichens in a subsection of the village. And when the game chooses to focus on these instances, combat can be truly scary. Or at least, tense. But there's a difference between this game, and the game it's taking inspiration from. In Resi 4, it's like a sandbox in which you have to figure out which weapon would be most effective, and figuring out which weapons you can carry at any given time is like a minigame in and of itself. The inventory sorting will squeeze the life out of you, your rifle alone takes up a good chunk of it. Comparatively, Resi Village is gratuitously lenient with you in almost every way. Ammo is abundant and you can craft more of it with scraps around the game world. With the exception of the most powerful weapons, it is surprisingly easy to stock up on ammo in this game. The default inventory space is generous, but you can expand it to be even more forgiving. Any tension that mechanic once created in Resi 4 is gone here. At one point, I think I had six weapons in my inventory, whereas I could barely hang on to three in Resi 4. You can upgrade your inventory space with Lei, but Lei is also regularly handed to you on a silver platter. With the defeat of every boss, you're given a treasure that you can sell to the Duke for a sizable amount. These alone can be enough to keep you afloat. On top of all of this, reverting to Resi 4's inventory system means that keys are not part of your core inventory. Deciding on what to carry is even easier in that regard, because key items just kind of live with you, until you can finally use them. The size constraints are truly felt when you decide to carry ingredients and other goodies with you for rewards. But because you'll likely just carry these ingredients you find in the village straight back to the Duke, and then resort your inventory, I find it hard to sell the rest of the village as if it has purpose, even on harder difficulties. If this village existed in a game like Resident Evil 2, if it was as strict as Resi 7, with real-time inventory management, and if most encounters felt even a fraction as intense as the ones in Heisenberg's factory, this game could have been amazing. But as it stands, Resi Village lacks that tension driven by critical thinking, and while the focus on action can be exhilarating, especially as you're swarmed or you face optional bosses way stronger than you, it is worrying all the same. By making this shift, you risk forfeiting the intimacy of previous encounters, and using action as a crutch signaled the downfall of Resident Evil in the past. Sure, the game is intense, but it isn't always scary. At its worst, it can be frustrating because it feels caught between being a sequel to 4 and a sequel to 6. Thankfully, the final fight with Miranda ends up redeeming this whole gameplay loop. 
It is everything that makes the action in Village so fun, distilled into a boss fight. But I feel as though Capcom wanted to compromise with this game. Its tense, action-packed moments coexist with a map structure that Resi 4 did away with in order to create segmented, but incredible, action horror set pieces. If this game ends up bridging into the rumored Resident Evil 4 remake, then its place in the series might make more sense. But I can't help but worry, as this could send the series right back into the rut it once clawed itself out of. Ironically, my favorite aspect of Resi Village, aside from the village itself, doesn't really have anything to do with the Resident Evil formula. It's not the core plot. I, I have gripes with this game's writing, and I don't think I'm alone there. Sure, Chris Redfield has lost plenty of people in his life, and he was likely worried about losing Ethan, too. But there are two crucial ways you can deconstruct his logic. For one, Ethan is more than a civilian. In fact, he received military training in the time after the fight through the Baker Ranch, but I'd argue that even surviving that ordeal would be enough. Would letting Ethan, a sensible person seasoned in combat with monsters, would letting him help be such a bad idea? No. And say you are one to side with Chris's logic, and you sympathize with him. Okay, sure. Three words, Chris. That's not Mia. That's all you had to say. Big bonus points if you tell him that Rose is gonna be okay. Seriously. A round of applause for the guy that chewed him out later on for that. I'm also not a huge fan of how they dismissed the werewolves and vampires as coincidences. It would have been cool to see how they fit into the mythos of Resident Evil, and while the game touches on the origins of Umbrella here, they completely disregard all of the cool stuff they set up at the beginning. Even the box art seemed to foreshadow Chris turning into some kind of chimera by the end of the game, but nothing even close to that ended up happening. Maybe it was in an earlier draft of the script and they changed things toward the end of development? I, I have no clue. So no, while the world is fun to explore, the narrative that takes place in it is not my favorite aspect of the game. My favorite part of Resident Evil Village is what the narrative represents, and how it is embodied in the game's best level. Let's start by talking about Ethan Winters himself. He's been through a lot, to say the least. He's forced to kill his infected wife after being missing for years, then he has to deal with a dysfunctional family of cannibals, only to reunite with his wife, cure her, and then be separated from her once more as he ends a nightmare that he played no part in instigating. Now here he is again, with an infant daughter, paranoid over the potential lasting effects of the incident in Louisiana, both internal and external. These fears are validated when Chris shoots his wife in front of him and kidnaps his daughter, and again when he fails to save what's left of the village as they succumb to the fire. This anxiety stems from things that are beyond his control, and as is the case with anxiety, your mind tends to spin tales out of the hypothetical and the unknown. But just as Mia said, we're here, and we matter. Ethan takes this to heart. He's here, and he can make a difference. All he cares about is saving Rose, and he takes that wish to his grave, dying a hero's death. I appreciate this take on a Resident Evil protagonist because the series' gameplay, at its core, has always been driven by anxiety. But where this anxiety is fully explored is House Beneviento. After such a traditional and exciting bout with Lady D in her castle, the game strips you of your weapons and asks you to walk through an abnormally normal house. It's just a tiny little escape room in a similar vein to Lucas's funhouse, but with any danger being completely non-existent while you solve puzzles. This notion put me on edge on my first playthrough. Why is everything so normal, and why do I feel so safe? At least to an extent. The house also alludes to its thematic elements both subtly and explicitly addressing Ethan's fears as a new parent and his devotion to his family. Like I said, 
Ethan is only here to save Rose. Nothing else really matters, not even his own life. However, being paranoid for his daughter's future after dealing with the mold in Louisiana has no doubt accentuated his fears over being a new parent in such a messed up world. But he can't run from these fears, lest he be consumed by them. <laughs> this thing ends up complicating the last few pieces to the puzzle of this house, and its appearance and sound design are utterly horrifying. Its lips vibrate as it shrieks, and it calls out to Ethan. It needs him. It's a less than subtle metaphor for what he's going through as a new parent, and viscerally, a response to something this daunting is to run like hell. When you eventually exit the basement and have to hunt down the dolls, it actually mirrors the second aspect of parenting, and something that Ethan is dealing with throughout the game keeping track of your kid, and the fear of losing them. It pains him to not know where Rose is, and this is quite literally hurting him in House Beneviento. Your health actually drains as you look for these dolls. By the time I had finally left the house, I never wanted to return. But I knew I would never forget it. Despite Village's shift in focus, Capcom still had it in them to create memorable horror set pieces, easing the anxiety over the series' unpredictable future. I had a lot of fun with Resident Evil Village, but its compromises hampered my enjoyment. And the current status of the franchise is a bit troublesome. After two financially successful but controversial entries, they took the series back to its roots, kicked ass, and made bank anyway. But now they seem to be taking a step backward based on a point of contention that I rarely saw anyone make in regards to Resi 7. Too scary? It's Resident Evil, what did you expect? Well, needless to say, I have my doubts over the future of the franchise seeing as they're starting to ignore what worked about 7 and Resi 2 Remake, and now there are rumors that they're remaking a game that most would argue doesn't need a remake in the first place. Moreover, I find myself wondering if Resident Evil still has a place in the industry. After the groundwork it set in 1996, and expanded upon throughout the 90s and 2000s, many horror games would follow in its wake and surpass or otherwise evolve on what it accomplished. Independent and established developers have both continued to find new ways to deliver interactive horror experiences. Maybe I shouldn't be asking if Resident Evil has a prosperous future ahead. Maybe what I should be asking is if Resident Evil has a future at all. Will the series head back to that dark place once again, never to return? Or will Capcom backpedal, channeling the energy of this new era's scariest moments, and create something timeless? Well, just like Ethan Winters, we don't have the answers. The most we can do right now is articulate our reactions to this new era and try to influence what's to come. Because like Resident Evil taught us, it's not about what we're up against. It's how we react that matters. Now it's your turn. Did you agree or disagree? I'd love to know what you think of this new era for the series, whether you share worries with me or feel confident in it. For now, I've been Liam Triforce, and I'd like to thank you for watching.